Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the legacy of Eric Holder, who, Richard, we found out since our last show, will be stepping down soon as Attorney General. This has been quite a run. By the time he leaves office, he's likely to be the second longest serving uh, Attorney General in the last hundred years, only Janet Reno longer. So uh, before we get into the specifics of, of Holder's tenure, why don't we actually define our unit of, of measurement? What makes a good Attorney General? If you were advising a president, what would you tell him are the traits he needs to look for in the person filling that position? Well, first of all, I think one underestimates the fact sometimes that it's a managerial position as well as a policymaking position. And the first thing I always look for in an attorney general is to see whether or not that person can make appointments of junior officials inside the office so as to understand how the assistant attorney generals do their job in a correct fashion. And now we should remember, of course, that with people like Lonnie Guineer and so forth, sometimes appointments of these assistant AGs has actually generated some real problem. Um, so that's one thing. And, you know, on this particular issue, I do not think that there's much to find fault with on our friend um, Holder. Um, basically, uh, there's been very little by way of scandal coming from people in lower offices inside the situation. The second thing, of course, that you worry about with an attorney general is the way in which he starts to define policy for the president and the way in which he gives advice. And it's a kind of a tricky measure because to some extent, he's not the president's personal lawyer. There's the Office of Legal Counsel that kind of discharges that. But he is running this huge operation and he has to have a very good working relationship with the president in order for this thing to prosper and to go sensibly well. And then third, I think he just has to have good substantive judgments on the kinds of cases he wants to bring. And to me, the basic sign of a good attorney general, and it's here where I think Holder falls down quite dramatically, is does he ever decide to go against type? That is, this man is basically a civil liberties lawyer. The sign of a good attorney general is somebody says, hey, uh, I'm not going to push hard on an issue that my group is supporting. Uh, he's clearly known to be sort of hostile to the financial transactions in Wall Street. And, you know, is he willing to back off on them? And I think, in effect, Holder, for the most part, has been willing to push very, very hard. Uh, but ironically, even on here, there's a kind of a difference, just to mention one of them. Uh, the people who don't like Holder, uh, and I think on many issues I'm in that camp, uh, are very upset about the way in which he extracted large settlements out of large corporations like J.P. Morgan for doing things that the government in many cases asked them to do. And then you look on the American left and you say, you know, the problem about this guy is he was willing to make settlements with firms but he wasn't willing to prosecute anybody criminally with respect to their malfeasance. My view is he was right about that because I wasn't sure there was any malfeasance to be um, punishing there. I, we could argue these cases, but you can see where the difficulty starts to come. And my sense about him is uh, he's too friendly to his friends and not friendly enough to his opponents. Um, he wants to go after J.P. Morgan, doubtful that he will not do anything with respect to Lois Lerner and the IRS is equally doubtful in my view. 
Holder, of course, was the first African-American attorney general uh, in the country's history and, and race always seemed to be at the forefront of his tenure. I mean this started very early on with the famous speech that he gave where he referred to America as a, a nation of cowards when it came to racial issues. And then you, you saw it over and over again, the issue with uh, voter intimidation yes. in Philadelphia from the New Black Panther Party, Ferguson, uh, the arguments over the Voting Rights Act, just this whole panoply of sort of racially tinged – Mm-hmm. Uh, issues that dominated his tenure. Uh, looking at the end of the day, at the end of his tenure, uh, Eric Holder, good or good or bad for race relations in America? I think he's bad. I think he's much too divisive with respect to this stuff. And he, again, doesn't pass the test that I just mentioned in starting to pull back. Um, in some cases, you pull back by asking for less. In some cases, you pull back by asking for nothing at all. Uh, but one of the things is once the Justice Department started to go in, it was always at full tilt and high gear, never anything. Uh, so if you take some of these Section 5 cases having to do with the Voting Rights Act, you know, my view is one of the great successes of a America has been the way in which all of the restrictions based on race and connection with franchise and voting have by and large disappeared over the last 50 years. And to think that the sign of an American uh, country having gone astray is the refusal to respect the 1964 uh, scheme for dealing with ferreting out racial violations when you're talking about public utility and municipal legislations in Texas, I think that this is all quite crazy. And I think he should not have pushed that hard. I think in many cases what he should have done is to say, I'm going to require fairly specific evidence of 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 misguided intention. Uh, You don't see that in virtually any cases. And the willingness to rely on general presumptions of racism writ large in the United States is, I think, seriously a mistake. With respect to Ferguson, to take another one, um, I'm just appalled at the fact that we still don't have any idea of exactly what happened in that case. There has been all sorts of rumors circulating uh, that the officer involved, Darren Wilson, I guess is his name, um, had a broken eye because he had been hit by Michael Brown. Um, we haven't seen it confirmed. We haven't seen it denied. It's clear that if the eye was broken in the way in which it was suggested, it changes the case. If it wasn't, it changes it in the opposite direction. And to sort of run a massive investigation as to whether or not police practices are well done on racial grounds in Ferguson or anywhere else, when you don't even know whether the one case which has been brought forward symbolically is resolved correctly or incorrectly is to my mind a mistake. He cannot, if he is running an investigation, take sides before the facts of this thing are out. And indeed, one of the things that you constantly try to remind people of is if you look at the crime statistics, many people are killed by unarmed people. Um, You get somebody brown size who's very big, uh, he can do a lot of damage. Whether he did it in this particular case, you don't know. But if you're the attorney general and you're trying to keep a lid on racial sentiments, you want to basically make sure that the facts are out. Well, the same thing is true with respect to Trayvon Martin, and the president here is at blame as well. I mean, there was a jury verdict. The federal government decided not to prosecute this case afterwards, even though double jeopardy would not block them. Uh, the family decided not to bring the lawsuit. My view is they did that because the judgment was, in fact, correct and sound, at least to the extent that these things could be done. And in order to get effective closure, it's appropriate for somebody to say, we brought a trial, we lost. The jury thought otherwise. We cannot sort of keep this as a case in the pantheon of racial injustices. And what Holder's basic attitude has been on that case as well is, look, I mean, we know what the truth is about this case independent of the trial. And then in effect, to sort of indict a nation based upon a very unfortunate interaction in which it seems as though Zimmerman, at least 
to the extent that a jury looked closely at it, uh, came out on top. And the lack of subsequent lawsuits is there. So, I mean, he does, I think, really go over the top with respect to this. To mention a third issue, which is that there are many of these cases now where the federal government, DOJ, in cooperation with the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Education, has these very draconian procedures with respect to the way in which it wants to investigate cases of uh, sexual violations of one form or another, harassment. And, you know, they basically specialize in violating all constitutional norms for elementary due process. Um, Eric Holder was Deputy General, Attorney General under the Clinton administration, and he was one of the people who wrote a very notorious Holder Memorandum, which essentially allowed for deferred prosecution agreements to be brought against people. He's too aggressive in those cases. And now he's holding all these university hostages to a set of procedures that are indefensible. So I think, in effect, in these cases, all these cases, he puts much further than he should have done. Even if you believe in civil rights, I don't think you have to believe in these particular manifestations of the movement. A lot has been made, Richard, since Holder's announcement of the fact that he seems to be one of the few personal friends that President Obama has in his administration. And there's, there's sort of two ways of looking at this. One is that you are – as a president, you're inevitably going to compromise your standards when you bring in people that you're close to and that they're the people that are most likely to sort of pull their punches when it comes to giving you objective advice. The The other is that no, you actually want people where there's a pre-existing relationship because the presidency is a, is a job that breeds isolation and having that trust walking in the door with someone is is vital. Where do you come down on that? Well, I, I think in effect it's a very difficult trade-off. Uh, if you're talking about a cabinet, what you want to do is to sort of mix them up. You want to bring in some people whom you trust because of past experience to give you personal advice and to call you up short. And then you want to get some people who are independent who will do exactly the opposite thing. The interesting question is where it is that Holder fits into this mix. In my judgment, I don't believe they were particularly close before the president was elected in 2008. Holder had been out of office for some time. And I think what happened is the two guys developed some kind of a bond after he was chosen. And this is atypical for Obama because I think virtually everybody knows his tendency is to be a bit aloof on these kinds of things. And he and Holder, perhaps because of the racial bond between them, uh, were in fact reasonably close. And I, my own view about this is that Obama realizes that after you've been serving close for six years, um, it comes close to involuntary servitude unless you want to stay on. So we had to let him go. But this was not a situation, I think, where he was eased out the door by any reason. Usually when somebody is asked to leave in one form or another, the next day or two days later, you see popping up another name because what they've done is orchestrated the replacement before they forced the resignation. In this case, I think it will be an uncertain and open process to who is going to replace him. So I think it actually, as a relationship between the two of them, um, remained pretty well. And in fact, if you think about the main issues on civil rights and getting Wall Street, it's hard to find a dime's worth of difference between the two of these men. Whatever the strength of one is, that's the strength of the other, and so too with their weaknesses. Uh, two quick questions here at the end. First, you mentioned you think it's going to be an open process, but for our listeners who maybe haven't been keeping up on the Attorney General Farm team, what what names could they expect perhaps to see in the mix? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, there'd be many more names than who are credible candidates that always right. go. Um, I just have no idea who's – there's one, Carmela Harris, who is the 
Um, Attorney General in California is one name that's been suggested. I've actually been involved in litigation on the other side of her in connection with um, some issues having to do with labor organization. Not good as far as I'm concerned. Indeed, completely unacceptable, but that's my view. It's not anybody else's. I think that Donald Verrilli, the Solicitor General, is somebody I personally basically admire Verrilli. I think he's a very honest, straight-shooting guy. I thought that the left savaged him unjustly when there was difficulty with respect to the Obamacare attitude. The question about attorney general is I don't think going to character or integrity. I think what it really goes to is it's just a very different job. And SG is basically the president's leading lawyer before the United States Supreme Court. And the attorney general is a policy position and a big administrative position. And it's not at all clear that people can move. There's Preet Bahara, who is the extremely ambitious fellow who brought in a lot of scalps. In many cases, I think unwise in, in fact, uh, uh, New York. He is clearly at this point, I think, the most visible of the local AGs in the various offices throughout the United States. Um, I think, in fact, he has to be regarded as a serious contender because, like the president, he's got a strong reformist instinct and he's all over the things. He does it with respect to the kinds of commercial cases that we've seen on J.P. Morgan, but he's also after, you know, inmate and psychiatric facilities on Rikers Island. One of the things I think that the president is strongly committed to, for which I have a great deal of sympathy, is trying to figure out how it is that you introduce better procedures inside all sorts of total institutions that are occupied and and operated by state and federal officials. So I think he's going to be somebody in there. I'm sure that there's got to be somebody in the United States Senate. I don't even know who it is who would be on that list as well. The real problem to me is I just don't think the president has enough internal infrastructure to vet this thing in the correct fashion. So I don't know who's going to be running this service. At this point, I think I and many other people have soured on Valerie Jarrett as being too much of the insider with too much power and too little experience and knowledge. I would not like to see her being in charge of this particular search. But, you know, even if she isn't going to be in charge, then she's going to be mixed up with it. Look, the attorney general in the basic hierarchy is certainly one of the three or four most important cabinet positions. There's the Department of State and the Department of Defense. That's sort of up there. Uh, but, you know, I'm kind of thinking pretty hard before I could find the guy whom I would think would be number four on that particular list. So it's obviously a very big deal. So closing question, Richard. If we have the Holder era coming to an end, it would be inhumane of me to ask you to sum up his tenure in a sentence. But give me the short paragraph, the, the brief encyclopedia entry. How should Eric Holder's tenure as attorney general be remembered? I think he should be remembered as a loyal aide to the president who shared many of the president's imbalances in judgment with respect to the way in which he helped his friends, i.e. the civil rights movement, and hurt his enemies, i.e. the financial services industry. Look at that, elegant and concise. Thank you, Richard. And well, thank you. we aim to please. Concision <laughs> is not normally my calling card on this show. But you've done it today, so thank you, Richard. I seated myself. It's fatigued. <laughs> and thank you, as always, to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.